Hi there, welcome back to Chester Governor on the Campaign Trail show. And today, going to listen to Baron Trump's. It's kind of a freak, a freak thing that happened. Marvelous Underground Journey. Okay. Baron Trump's marvelous. Um, underground journey. Okay, I'm gonna. I'm trying to set this up properly so you can hear it well. Always the considerate host. Turn on the Bluetooth and connect to Anchor. My Anchor. Oh, production unsuccessful. Oh, forget this one. Right party. Forget this device and parody, okay. Now discoverable is iPhone. Blue, okay, I'm gonna turn that turn off. Okay, there we go. It's my anchor. So yeah, this is a very strange thing that ha um <clears throat> that happened. I, it might be a setup. That's kind of my impression that it might be a setup with Trump to make it so that it's kind of like death fated for him to be the last president. It's something you know, they mentioned something about the last president. I've been wondering if they just didn't like fraudulently slip this into the Library of Congress or something like a couple of years ago to to make him seem more, uh, what do you call it, um, intriguing or mysterious or, or, uh, you know, predestined to, to become our fucking last president and first emperor. Marvelous underground journey. So I promised, I promised that we would do a podcast. This is freaking six hours long though, so. I'm going to be doing other things. Might have to take breaks as necessary. But, um, yeah. So, let's see. Uh, um, podcasting, I believe, on two different podcasts. Am I podcasting on two? Yes. Okay. Alright. So, Welcome to the Christopher Governated Show, and I promised that we would do a podcast on the Ingersoll Lockwood Baron Trump's Marvelous Underground Journey. This is in LibriVox. I should read a book for them one of these days. Recording. There we go. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marcel D. Ward, thesoulexpands.com. Baron Trump's Marvelous Underground This is King Charlotte Sound System, Healing of the Nations, number 12, part 2, by the way. Biographical Notice. Biographical Notice of Wilhelm Heinrich Sebastian von Trump, commonly called Little Baron Trump. As Doubting Thomas seemed pleasure in popping up on all occasions, jack-in-a-box-like, it may be well to head them off in this particular instance by proving that Baron Trump was a real Baron. 
and not a mere baron of the mind. By the way, uh, in the book, there's an illustration, and it looks just like little Baron Trump, you know, the autistic child of, of Melania and apparently Trump. But, uh, yeah. So that's my little footnote there. The family was originally French Huguenot, de la Trompe, which, upon the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685, took refuge in Holland, where its head assumed the name of Van der Trompe, just as many other of the French Protestants rendered their names into Dutch. Some years later, upon the imitation of the Elector of Brandenburg, Nicholas van der Trump became a subject of that prince and purchased a large estate in the province of Pomerania, again changing his name. Where the hell is Pomerania? This time to von Trump. The little baron, so called from his diminutive stature, Huguenots. was born some time in. I need to do a little search on the Huguenots. Little, little research latter part of the 17th century. He was the last of his race in the direct line, although cousins of his are today well-known Pomeranian gentry. Pomeranian. He began his travels at an incredibly early age and filled his castle with such strange objects picked up here and there in the faraway corners of the world that the simple-minded peasantry came to look upon him as half bigwig and half magician. Hence, the growth of the many myths and fanciful stories concerning this indefatigable globetrotter. Here's the definition of the date of his death cannot be fixed with any certainty, but this much may be said. Among the portraits of Pomeranian notables hanging in the Rathaus at Stetton, there is one picturing a man of low stature and with a head much too large for his body. He is dressed in some outlandish costume and holds in his left hand a grotesque image in ivory. Um, okay, Huguenots. The Huguenots. I forget. Um, the Huguenots also, uh, whatever, it was a religious tr- group of French Protestants who held to the Reformed or Calvinist tradition of Protestantism. The term which may be derived from the names of, of a Swiss political leader, the Genevan Burgomaster Biz- Byzantine Hughes was in common use by the mid-16th century. Huguenots was frequently used in reference to those of the Reformed Church of France. From the time of the Protestant Reformation, by contrast, the Protestant populations of eastern France and Alsace, Moselle, and Montbéliard were mainly Lutherans. His Encyclopedia of Protestantism, Heinz Hillebrand wrote that on the eve... Okay. It just occurred to me, um, I think he must have a connection to the, um, you know, the, this America first, you know, this ultra right wing movements. I think they're related, they're, they're related to each other, like to the, it just suddenly occurred to me, like the French connection, like that, that, uh, what's his name? The right wing, um, dudes. In France, the right-wing leader. Uh, anyway, in his Encyclopedia of Protestantism, Hans Hillebrand wrote that on the eve of the Saint Barthol- 
Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572, the Huguenot community made up as much as 10% of the French population. By 1600, it declined to 78% and was reduced further late in the century after the return of persecution under Louis XIV, who instituted the Dragonades, 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 to forcibly convert the Protestants. I wonder why they call it Dragonades. Dragon. And then finally revoked all. Hmm. Protestant writes in his The Edict of Fontainebleau of 1685 the Huguenots were concentrated in the southern and western parts of the Kingdom of France. As Huguenots gained an influence and more openly displayed their faith, Catholic hostility grew. A series of religious conflicts followed, known as the French Wars of Religion, fought intermittently from 15. This is interesting because uh, today France is like 80% atheist, and um, you know, compared to like was I used to quote this uh, astonishing statistic: something like 90% of Americans have never questioned the existence of God. <laughs> Um, yeah, and uh, they have, they seem to have, like in France, they have such a uh, kind of a tradition of questioning and, and philosophy, basically, questions these things. And so today, most French people are atheists, from my experience, which was like 20 years old. And the Prince of Continency, the Huguenots were led by John Dabre, her son, the future Henry IV, who would later convert to Catholicism in order to become king. In the Princes of Condé, the wars ended with the Edict of Nantes, which granted the Huguenots substantial religious, political, and military autonomy. Huguenot rebellions in the 1620s resulted in the abolition of their political and military privileges. They retained the religious provisions of the Edict of Nantes until the, until the rule of Louis XIV, who gradually increased persecution of Protestantism until he issued the Edict of Fontainebleau in 1685. This ended legal recognition of Protestantism in France, and the Huguenots were forced to either convert to Catholicism, possibly as Nicodemites. Reminds me of my friend Matt and Nicodemus. Um, or flee as refugees. They were subject to violent dragonades. Louis XIV claimed that the French Huguenot population was reduced from about 900,000 of 800,000 adherents to just 1,000 or 1,500. Wow. It was a genocide. He exaggerated the decline, but the dragonades were devastating for the French Protestant community. I'm pronouncing it purposely like how American would pronounce it. Dragonades. I'm sure it's like Dragonades. Dragon. The remaining Huguenots faced continued persecution under Louis the Fifteenth. By the time of his death in 1774, Calvinism had been nearly eliminated from France. Persecution of Protestants officially ended with the Edict of Versailles. Signed by Louis XVI in um, 1787, two years later, with the revolution and the declaration of the rights of man and the citizen, 1789. Protestants gained equal rights to citizens. Um, immigration, exodus. 1985 apology. What's that about? I wonder. François Mitterrand is a formal apology to the Huguenots. 
and their descendants on behalf of the French state in 1985. Hmm, interesting. In October 1985, to commemorate the tricentenary, the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, President François Mitterrand of France announced a formal apology to the descendants of Huguenots around the world. At the same time, the government released a special post stamp in their honor, reading, France is the home of the Huguenots. Okay, the Huguenots. <laughs> That's not funny, just uh, stop laughing at other people's misfortune. Most elaborately carved. The broad faces full of intelligence and the large gray eyes are lighted up with a good natured but quizzical look that invariably attracts attention. The man's right hand rests upon the back of a dog sitting on a table and looking straight out with an air of dignity that shows that he knew he was sitting for his portrait. The visitor asked the guide who this Fair man is and always gets for answer. Oh, that's the little baron. But little baron who? That's the question. Why may it not be fucking the famous Wilhelm Heinrich Sebastian this. von Trump commonly I think called this is written by little Trump, baron Trump fucking and his wonderful dog interns. End of biographical notice. Recording by Marcel D. Ward, thesoulexpands.com. The what? <sighs> yeah, it's like Chapter an onion. It, it, it sounds, sounds like a fucking red herring to me, giant. just like the waste our this time. Is a LibriVox recording. Oh my god, it's All LibriVox so recordings strange. are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marcel D. Ward, thesoulexpands.com. Marielle Trump's Baron Trump's Too Marvelous Never Underground Nef. Journey by Ingersoll Lockwood, Chapter 1. Bulger is greatly annoyed by the familiarity of the village dogs and the presumption of the house cats. His health suffers thereby, and he implores me to set out on my travels again. I readily consent, for I had been reading of the world within a world in a musty old manuscript written by the learned Don Foon. Parting interviews with the Reminds elder the great scroll and of the gracious Baron is my mother. Preparations for departure. Bulger was not himself at all, dear friends. There was a lackluster look in his eyes, and his tail responded with only a half-hearted wag when I spoke to him. I say half-hearted, for I always had a notion that the other end of Bulger's tail was fastened to his heart. His appetite, too had gone down with his spirits. And he rarely did anything more than sniff at the dainty food which I set before him, although I tried to tempt him with fried chicken livers and toasted coxcombs, two of his favorite dishes. There was evidently something on his mind, and yet it never occurred to me what that something was, for, to be honest about it, it was something which, of all things, I never should have dreamed of finding there. Possibly, I might have discovered at an earlier day what it was all about. Had it not been that just at this time I was very busy, too busy, in fact, to pay much attention to anyone, even to my dear four-footed foster brother.
As you may remember, dear friends, my brain is a very active one. And when once I become interested in the subject, the castle trumpet itself might fire and burn until the legs of my chair had become charred before I would hear the noise and confusion, or even smell the smoke. It so happened at the time of Bulger's low spirits that the elder Baron had, through the kindness of an old school friend, come into possession of a 15th century manuscript from the pen of a no less celebrated thinker and philosopher than the learned Spaniard Don Constantino Bartolomeo Strefalo Fitzguanerisfum, commonly known among scholars as Don Fum, entitled A World Within a World. In this work, Don Fum advanced the wonderful theory that there is every reason to believe that the interior of our world is inhabited, that, as is well known, this vast earth ball is not solid. On the contrary, being in many places quite hollow, that ages and ages ago, terrible disturbances had taken place on its surface and had driven the inhabitants to seek refuge in these vast underground chambers, so vast, in fact, as well to merit the name of World Within a World. Underworld. This book, with its crumpled, torn, and time-stained leaves, exhaling the odors of vaulted, crypt, and worm-eaten chest, exercised a peculiar fascination upon me. All day long, and often far into the night, I sat poring over its musty and mildewed pages, quite forgetful of the service world, and with a plummet of thought sounding these subterranean depths, and with the eye and ear of fancy visiting them, and gazing upon and listening to the dwellers therein. While I would be thus engaged, Bulger's favorite position was on a quaintly embroidered leather cushion brought from the Orient by me on one of my journeys, and now placed on the end of my work table nearest the window. From this point of vantage, Bulger commanded a full view of the park and the terrace and of the drive leading up to the Corco Cochere. Nothing escaped his watchful eye. Here, he sat hour by hour, amusing himself by noting the comings and goings of all sorts of folk, from the hawkers of Gugas to the noblest people in the Shire. One day, my attention was attracted by his suddenly leaping down from his cushion and giving a low growl of displeasure. I paid little heed to it, but to my surprise, the next day about the same hour it occurred again. My curiosity was now thoroughly aroused, and, laying down Don Fum's musty manuscript, I hastened to the window to learn the cause of Bulger's irritation. Lo, the secret was out. There stood half a dozen Mongol curs belonging to the tenantry of the baronial lands, looking up to the window and by their barking and annex, endeavoring to entice Bulger out for a round. Dear friends, need I assure you that such familiarity was extremely distasteful to Bulger? Their impudence was just a little more than he could stand. Ringing my bell, I directed my servant to hunt them away, whereupon Bulger consented to resume his seat by the window. The next morning, 
just as I had settled myself down for a good long read, I was almost startled by Boger bounding into the room with eyes flashing, fire and teeth laid bare in anger. Laying hold of the skirt of my dressing gown, he gave it quite a savage tug, which meant, put that book aside, little master, and follow me. I did so. He led me downstairs, across the hallway, and into the dining room. And then this new cause of discontent on his part became very apparent to me. There grouped around his silver breakfast place sat an ancient tabby cat and four kittens, all calmly licking or laughing away at his breakfast. Looking up into my face, he uttered a sharp, complaining howl, as much as to say, There, little master, look at that. Isn't that enough to rub the patience of a saint? Can't thou wonder that I am not happy with all these disagreeable things happening to me? I tell thee, little master, it is too much for flesh and blood to put up with. And I thought so too, and did all in my power to comfort my unhappy little friend. But judge of my surprise upon reaching my room and directing him to take his place on his cushion, to see him refuse to obey. It was something extraordinary, and set me to thinking. He noticed this and gave a joyful bark, then dashed into my sleeping apartment. He was gone for several moments, and then, returning, bearing in his mouth a pair of oriental shoes, which he laid at my feet. Again and again he disappeared, coming back each time with some article of clothing in his mouth. In a few moments, he had laid a complete oriental costume on the floor before my eyes. Would you believe me, dear friends? It was the identical suit which I had worn my last travels in faraway lands. When he and I had been wrecked on the island of Gugula, the land of the round bodies, what did it all mean? Why, this, to be sure. Little master, canst thou not understand thy dear Bulger? He's weary of this dull and spiritless existence. He is tired of this increasing familiarity on the part of these marble curs of the neighborhood and of the audacity of these kitchen tabbies and their families. He implores thee to break away from this life of reverie and inaction and for the honor of the trumps to be up and away again. Stooping down and winding my arms around my dear Bulger, I cried out, Yes, I understand thee now, faithful companion, and I promise thee that before this moon has filled her horns, we shall once more turn our backs on Castle Trump, up and away, in search of the portals to Donform's world within a world. Upon hearing these words, Booker broke out into the wildest, maddest barking, bounding hither and thither as if the very spirit of mischief had suddenly nestled in his heart. In the midst of these mad gambles, a low rap on my chamber door caused me to call out, Peace, peace, good Bulger. Someone knocks. Peace, I said. It was the elder baron. With somber mien and stately tread, he advanced and took a seat beside me on the canopy. Welcome, honored father, I exclaimed as I took his hand and raised it to my lips. I was upon the very point of seeking thee out. He smiled and then said, Well, little baron, what thinkest thou of Don Fung's world within a world? 
I think, my lord, was my reply, that Don Flum is right, that such a world must exist, and, with thy consent, it is my intention to set out in search of its portals with all safe haste, and as soon as my dear mother, the gracious baroness, may be able to bring her heart to part with me, the elder baron was silent for a moment, and then added, Little baron, much as thy mother and I shall dread to think of thy being again out from under the safe protection of this venerable roof, the moss-grown tiles of which have sheltered so many generations of the Trumps, yet must we not be selfish in this matter. Heaven forbid that such a thought should move our souls to stay thee. The honor of our family, thy fame as an explorer of strange lands in faraway corners of the globe, call unto us to be strong-hearted. Therefore, my dear boy, make ready and go forth once more in search of new marvels. The learned Don Foam's chart will stand thee by like a safe and trusty counselor. Remember, little baron, the motto of the Trumps, per ardua ad astra, the pathway to glory is strewn with pitfalls and dangers, but the comforting thought shall ever be mine that when thy keen intelligence fails, vulgar's and erring instinct will be there to guide. As I stooped to kiss the elder baron's hand, the gracious baroness entered the room. Vulgar hastened to raise himself upon his hind legs and lick her hand in token of respectful greeting. The tears were pressing hard against her eyelids, but she kept them back, and encircling my neck with her loving arms, she pressed many and many a kiss upon my cheeks and brow. I know what it all means, my dear son, she murmured, with the saddest of smiles, but it never shall be said that Gertrude Baroness Von Trump stood in the way of her son, adding new glories to the family's cushion. Go, go, little Baron, and heaven bring thee safely back to our arms and to our hearts in its own good time. At these words, Olga, who had been listening to the conversation with pricked up ears and glistening eyes, gave one long howl of joy, and then, springing into my lap, covered my face with kisses. This done, he vented his happiness in a string of ear-splitting barks and a series of the maddest gambles. It was one of the happiest and proudest days of his life before he felt that he had exerted considerable influence in spurring to the sticking point my resolution to set out on my travels once again. And now the patter of hurrying feet and a loud murmur of ancient voices resounded through the castle corridors, while inside and out, ever and anon, I could hear the cry now whispered and now outspoken. Little Baron is making ready to leave home again. Bulger ran hither and thither, surveying everything, taking note of all the preparations, and I could hear a joyous bark ring out as the familiar article used by me on my former journeys was dragged from its hiding place. Twenty times a day my gentle mother came to my room to repeat some good counsel or reiterate some valuable caution. It seemed to me that I had never seen her so calm, so stately, so lovable. She was very proud of my great name, and so, in fact, were every man, woman, and child in the castle. Had I not gotten off as I did, I should have been literally killed with kindness, and Bulger slain with sweet End of chapter one. Recording by Marcel D. Ward, thesoulexpands.com. Chapter 2 
of Baron Trump's marvelous underground journey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marcel D. Ward, TheSoulExpands.com, Baron Trump's Marvelous Underground Journey, by Ingersoll Lockwood, Chapter 2. Don Foam's Mysterious Directions. Bulger and I set out for Petersburg, and thence proceed to Archangel. The story of our journey, as far as Illich on the Illich, Ivan the Teamster, how we made our way northward in search of the portals to the world within a world, Ivan's threat, Bulger's distrust of the man, and other things. According to the learned Don Foam's manuscript, the portals to the world within a world were situated somewhere in northern Russia, possibly, so he thought, from all indications, somewhere on the westerly slope of the upper Urals. But the great thinker could not locate them with any accuracy. The people will tell thee, was the mysterious phrase that occurred again and again on the mildewed pages of this wonderful writing. The people will tell thee, ah, but what people will be learned enough to tell me that? Was the brain-racking question which I asked myself, sleeping and waking, at sunrise, at high noon, and at sunset, at the crowing of the cock, and in the silent hours of the night. The people will tell thee, said learned Don Foam. Ah, but what people will tell me where to find the portals to the world within a world? Hitherto on my travels, I had made choice of a semi-oriental garb, both on account of its picturesqueness and its lightness and warmth. But now, as I was about to pass quite across Russia for a number of months, I resolved to don the Russian national costume. For speaking Russian fluently, as I did a score or more of languages living and dead, I would thus be enabled to come and go without everlastingly displaying my passport, or having my trains of thought constantly disturbed by inquisitive traveling companions. A very important thing to me, for my mind possessed the extraordinary power of working out automatically any task assigned to it by me, provided it was not suddenly thrown off its track by some ridiculous interruption. For instance, I was upon the very point one day of discovering perpetual motion when the gracious Baroness suddenly opened the door and asked me whether I had pared the nails on my great toes lately, as she had observed that I had worn holes in several pairs of my best stockings. It was about the middle of February when I set out from the Castle Trump, and I journeyed night and day in order to reach Petersburg by the 1st of March, for I knew that the government trains would leave that city for the YC during the first week of that month. Bulger and I were both in the best of health and spirits, and the fatigue of the journey didn't tell upon us in the least. The moment I arrived at the Russian capital, I applied to the emperor for permission to join one of the government trains, which was most graciously accorded. Our route lay almost directly to the northward for several days, at the end of which time we reached the shores of Lake Ladoga. This we crossed on the ice with our sledges, as a few days later we did Lake Onega, 
Thence, by land again, we kept on our way until Onega Bay had been reached, crossing it too, on the ice, and so reaching the station of the same name, where we halted for a day to give our horses a well-deserved rest. From this point, we proceeded in a straight line over the snowfields to Archangel, an important trading post on the White Sea. As this was the destination of the government train, I parted with its commandant after a few days' pleasant sojourn at the government house, and set out, attended only by my faithful Bulgar and two servants, who had been assigned to me by the Imperial Commission. My course now carried me up the river Duena, as far as Sovjetigosk. Then- okay, I just wanted to interject here an impression I got about what's really going on behind this whole book. I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's Trump's, all comes from Trump. Remember there was a, um, there was a time when he, uh, there was a report in the, in the news about, like, he went off on a tangent about a movie, making, making a movie, and, um, this, to me, sounds like his movie, and it's thinly veiled, like, when he's talking about Russia, he was, it's actually talking about when he was vetted by Russia, Putin said that he was a, um, they've been, uh, cultivating, uh, cultivating, um, him as an asset since the 80s. Be, and he's susceptible to flattery, for one, and, uh, yeah, easily manipulable, especially by the former head of the KGB. Anyway, yeah, see, he's been a Russian asset since the 80s. I proceeded on my way over the frozen waters of the Wuchega River until we had reached the government post of Yarinsk. And from here on, we headed due east until our hardy little horses had dragged us into the picturesque and village, sounds like uh, village on the village. This stuff sounds like uh, him raving, actually. Like trying to sound old-fashioned, you know, trying to like, put Sojourn in there. And he's, he's like writing it with his interns, basically. And he's like all coked out on blow and uh, riddling. Here we were obliged to abandon our sledges for the snows that disappeared like magic, uncovering long vistas of green fields, which in a few days the May sun dotted with flowers and sweet shrubs. At Illich, I was obliged to relinquish from my service the two faithful government retainers who had accompanied me from Archangel, for they had now reached the most westerly point which they had been commissioned to visit. I had become very much attached to them, and so I vulgar. And after their departure, we both felt as if we were now, for the first time, among strangers in a strange land. But I succeeded in engaging, as I thought, a trustworthy teamster, Ivan by name, who made a contract with me for a goodly wage to carry me a hundred miles farther north. But not another step farther, little baron, said the fellow doggedly. I was now really at the foothills of the northern Urals, for the rocky crests and snow-clad peaks were in full sight. 
I turned many a wistful look up toward the wild regions, shut in by their sheer walls and parapets, shaggy and bristling with black pines, for a low mysterious voice came a whispering in my inward ear that somewhere, ah, somewhere, in that awful wilderness, I should one day come upon the portals of the world within a world. In spite of all I could do, Bulger took a violent dislike to Ivan and Ivan to him. And if the bargain had not been made and the money paid over, I should have looked about me for another teamster. And yet it would have been a foolish thing to do. For Ivan had two another excellent horses, teamster. as I saw at a glance, and what's more, he took the best care of them. Teamsters probably used Gestapo. rubbing them until they were quite dry, and never thinking of his own supper until they had been watered and fed. His charantas, too, was quite new and solidly built and well furnished with soft blankets. All in all, as comfortable as you can make a wagon which has no other springs than the two long wooden supports that reach from axle to axle. True, they were somewhat elastic, but I could notice that Bulger was not overfond of riding in this curious vehicle with his rattly bang gait up and down the mountain roads and often asked permission to leap out and follow on foot. At length, Ivan reported everything in readiness for the start. And although I would have fain taken my departure from Illich on the Illich in as quiet a manner as possible, yet the whole village turned out to GP see us Ivan's family, father, mother, sisters, and brothers, wife and children, uncles and aunts, and cousins by dozens alone, making up people enough to stock a small town. They cheered and waved their kerchiefs. Bulger barked, and I smiled and raised my cap with all the dignity of a trump. And so we got away at last from Illich on the Illich, Ivan on the box, and Bulger and I at the back, sitting close together like two brothers that we were, two breasts with but a single heartbeat and two brains busy with the same thought. That come perils or come sudden attacks, come covert danger or bold and open-faced onslaught, we should stand together and fall together. Many and many a time, as Ivan's horses went in the, up the long stretches of mountain road, and I lay stretched upon the broad cushioned seat of the turrets as the blanket rolled up for a pillow, I would find myself unconsciously repeating those mysterious words of Don Fung. Don tell me. It's got Don and, and, and Trump. So steep were the roads that some days we would not make more than five miles, and on others, a halt of several hours would have to be made to enable Ivan to tighten his horse's shoes. He has to have his name in there. Or do some needful thing in or about his wagon. It was slow work. Aye. It was very slow and tedious. Aye. But what matters in how many or great the difficulties to a man who has made up his mind to accomplish a certain task? Do the storks or the wild geese stop to count the thousands of miles between them and their That's far the away homes? in there. When the time comes to turn their heads southward, do the brown ants pause to count the hundreds of thousands of grains of sand which they must carry through their long corridors and winding passages before they have Trump. burrowed deep enough to escape the frost He's of dictated. midwinter? There have been many trumps, 
but never one that had thrown up his arms and cried, I surrender. And should I be the first to do it? Never. Not even if it meant never to see dear old Castle Trump again. One morning, as we went zigzagging up a particularly nasty bit of mountain road, Ivan suddenly wheeled about and without even taking off his hat, cried out, Little Baron, I covered the last mile of the hundred today. If thou wouldst go any farther north, thou must hire thee another teamster. Dost hear? Silence, said I sternly. Dost hear. For the fellow had broken in upon a very important train of thought. Bulger, too, resented the man's insolence, and growled and showed his teeth. But little Baron listened to reason, he continued in a more respectful tone, removing his cap. My people will expect me back. I promised my father. I'm a dutiful son. I... Nay, nay, Ivan, I interrupted sharply. Curb that tongue of thine, lest it harm thy soul. Know, then, that I spoke with thy father, and he promised me that thou shouldst go a second hundred miles with me, if need were, but on condition that I give thee double pay. It shall be done, and on top of that, goodly present for your Golubchka and darling. Little Baron, thou art a hard master, whimpered the man. The whim took thee, thou wouldst bid me leap into the giant's well, just to see whether it has a bottom or not. St. Nicholas, save me. Nay, I said I kindly. I know no such word as cruelty, although I do confess that right seems harsh at times, but thou wert born to serve, and I to command. Providence hath made thee poor and me rich. We need each other. Do thou thy duty, and thou wilt find me just and considerate. Disobey me, and thou wilt find that this short arm may be stretched from Illich to Petersburg. I've been turned pale at this hidden threat of mine, but I deemed it necessary to make it, for I, as well as Bulger, had scented treachery and rebellion about this boorish fellow whose good trait was his love of his horses. And it has always been my rule in life to open my eyes wide to the good that there is in a man and close them to his faults. But, in spite of kind words and kind treatment, Ivan grew surlier and moodier the moment he had passed the hundredth milestone. Bogo watched him with a gaze so steady and thoughtful that the man fairly quailed before it. Hour by hour, he became more and more rested, and upon leaving a roadside tavern for the very first time since we had left Illich on the Illich, I noticed that the fellow had been drinking too much cross. He let loose his tongue and raised his hand against his horses, which until that moment he had been wont to load down with caresses and pet names. Look out for that driver of thine, little baron, whispered the tavern keeper. He's in a reckless mood. He not pull up at the giant's well were gaping in front of him. Saint Nicholas had thee in his safe keeping. End of chapter two. Recording by Marcel D. Ward. The Chapter three Baron Kloop's Marvelous Underground Journey. 
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Sylvia M.B. in Washington State. Baron Trump's Marvelous Underground Journey by Ingersoll Lockwood. Chapter 3. Ivan, more and more troublesome. Bulger watches him closely. His cowardly attack upon me my faithful bulger to the rescue a driver worth having how i was carried to a place of safety in the hands of old juliana the giant's well when we halted for the night it was only by threatening the man with severe punishment upon my return to hitch that i could bring him to rub his horses dry and feed and water them properly but i stood over him until he had done his work thoroughly for i knew that no such horses could be had for love or money in that country and if they should go lame from standing with wet coats in the chill night air it might mean a week's delay scarcely had i thrown myself on the hard mattress which the tavern keeper called the best bed in the house when i was aroused by loud and boisterous talking in the next room ivan was drinking and quarreling with the villagers I strode into the room with the arrows of indignation shooting from my eyes, and the faithful Bulger close at my heels. The moment Ivan set eyes upon us, he shrank away, half in earnest and half in jest, and called out, eh, Look at the Mazunchik, the little dandy. How smart he looks, he frightens me. See his eyes, how they shine in the dark? Look at the little demon on four legs beside him. Save me, brother, save me. He will throw me down into the giant's well. Marianka will never see me again. Save me, brothers. Peace, fellow, I called out sternly. How darest thou exercise thy dull wit on thy master? Get thee to bed at once, or I'll have thee whipped by the village constable for thy drunkenness. Ivan clambered up upon the top of the bake oven and stretched himself out on a sheepskin. Then, turning to the tavern keeper, I forbade him under any pretext whatever to give my servant any more liquor to drink. Ah, your excellency, exclaimed the tavern keeper with a gesture of disgust. The fools never know when they have had enough. It matters not what the tavern keeper may say to them. They tell us not to spoil our own trade. Ah, they don't know when to stop. They have throats as deep as that giant's well. Giant's well, the giant's well, I murmured to myself as I again threw myself down upon the bag of hay, which did service as a mattress for those who could afford to pay for it. It's strange how those words seem to be in every peasant's mouth, but I thought no more about it at the time. Sleep got the better of me, and with my usual good night to the elder baron and the gracious baroness, my mother, I dropped off into sweet forgetfulness. It is a good thing that I had the power of falling asleep almost at will. For with my restless brain ever throbbing and pulsating with its own overabundance of strength, ever tapping at the thin panels of bone which covered it, like an imprisoned inventor pounding on his cell door and pleading to be let out into the daylight with his plans and schemes, I should simply have become a lunatic. As it was, with the mere power of thought, I ordered sweet slumber to come to my rescue, and so obedient was this good angel of mine that all I had to do was simply to set the time when I wished to awaken, and the thing was done to the very minute. As for Bulger, I never pretended to lay down any rules for him. He made it a practice of catching forty winks when he was persuaded that no danger of any kind threatened me. And even then, I am half inclined to believe that, like an anxious mother over her babe, he never quite closed both eyes at once. Though entirely sobered by daybreak, yet Ivan went about the task of harnessing up with such an ill grace that I was obliged to reprove him several times before we had left the tavern yard. 
He was like a vicious but cowardly animal that quails before a strong and steady eye, but watches its opportunity to spring upon you when your back is turned. I not only called Bulger's attention to the fellow's actions, I warned him to be very watchful, but I also took the precaution to examine the priming of the brace of Spanish pistols which I carried thrust into my belt. We had scarcely pulled out into the highway when a low growl from Bulger aroused me from a fit of meditation, and this growl was followed by such an anxious whine from my four-footed brother as he raised his speaking eyes to me that I glanced hastily from one side of the road to the other. Lo and behold, the treacherous Ivan was deliberately engaged in an attempt to overturn the Tarantas and to get rid of his enforced task of transporting us any farther on our journey. Wretch, I cried, springing up and laying my hand on his shoulder. I perceive very plainly what thou hast in mind, but I warn thee most solemnly that if thou makest another attempt to overturn thy wagon, I'll slay thee where thou sittest. For only answer, and with a lightning-like quickness, he struck a backhand blow at me with the loaded end of his whipstock. It took me full in the right temple, and sent me to the bottom of the Tarantus like a piece of lead. For an instant, the terrible blow robbed me of my senses. But then I saw that the cowardly villain had turned in his seat, and had swung the heavy-handled whip aloft with intent to dispatch me with a second and surer blow. Poor fool! He reckoned without his host, for with a shriek of rage, Bulger leaped at his throat like a stone from a catapult, and struck his teeth deep into the fellow's flesh. He roared with agony and attempted to shake off this unexpected foe, but in vain. By this time I had come to a full realizing sense of the terrible danger Bulger and I were both in, for Ivan had dropped his whip and was reaching for his sheath knife. But he never gripped it, for a well-aimed shot from one of my pistols struck him in the forearm, for I had no wish to take the man's life, and broke it. The shock and pain so paralyzed him that he fell over against the dashboard half in a faint, and then rolled completely out of the wagon, dragging Bulger with him. The horses now began to rear and plunge. I saw no more. There was a noise, as of the roar of angry waters in my ears, and then the light of life went out of my eyes entirely. I had swooned dead away. It seemed to me hours that I lay there on my back in the bottom of the Tarantas, with my head hanging over the side, but of course it was only minutes. I was aroused by a prickling sensation on my left cheek, and as I slowly came to myself, I discovered that it proceeded from the gravel thrown up against it by one of the front wheels of the Trantas, for the horses were galloping along at the top of their speed, and there on the driver's seat sat my faithful Bulger, the reins in his teeth, bracing himself so as to keep them taut over the horses' backs. And as I sat up and pressed my hand against my poor hurt head, the whole truth broke upon me. The moment Ivan had struck the ground, Bulger had released his hold on the fellow's throat, and ere he had had a chance to revive, he had leaped up into the driver's seat, and catching up the reins in his teeth, right had drawn them taut, and thus put an end to the rearing and plunging of the frightened beast, and started them on their way, leaving the enraged Ivan brandishing his knife and uttering imprecations upon mine and Bulger's heads as he saw his horses and wagon disappear in the distance. Now was it that a mad shouting assailed my ears, and I caught a glimpse of half a dozen peasants, who, seeing this as they thought empty Tarantus come nearer and nearer with its galloping horses, had abandoned their work and rushed out to intercept it. Judge of their amazement, dear friends, as their eyes fell upon the calm and skillful driver bracing himself on the front seat, and with oft-repeated backward tosses of his head urging those horses to bear his beloved master farther and further away from the treacherous Ivan's sheath-knife. 
As the peasant seized the animals by the heads and brought them to a standstill, I staggered to my feet and threw my arms around my dear Bulger. He was more than pleased with what he had done, and licked my bruised brow with many a piteous moan. St. Nicholas save us! cried one of the peasants, devoutly making the sign of the cross. But if I should live long enough to fill the giant's well with pebbles, I never would expect to see the likes of this again. Giant's well, the giant's well, I murmured to myself as I followed one of the peasants to his cot, standing a little back from the highway, for I stood sore in need of rest after the terrible experience I had just had. The blow of Ivan's whip-handle had jarred my brain, and I was skilled enough in surgery to know that the hurt called for immediate attention. As good luck would have it, I found beneath the peasant's roof one of those old women, half-witches perhaps, who have recipes for everything and who know an herb for every ailment. After she had examined the cut made by the loaded whip-handle, she muttered out, It is not as broad as the mountain, nor as deep as the giant's well, but it's bad enough, little master. Giants well again, thought I, as I laid me down on the best bed they could make up for me. I wonder where it may be, that giant's well, and how deep it is, and who drinks the water that is drawn from it. End of chapter 3. Well, I think he's part of the lizards. Chapter uh, 4 of Baron Trump's Marvelous from from Underground below. Journey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, and he knows about this because um, his ancestors are reptilian, and live uh, underground. Contacted by Nazi Germany under Hitler, who was a pawn of the crown. And, uh, you know what, I have to note here that I'm just not just making this shit up. He reads Hitler's Mein Kampf every night before bed. It's on his bedside table, according to Ivana. And I think that Ivan character, that's Ivana, you know, like, it's his adversary. And it was, a uh, uh, you know, it was a pretty nasty divorce, and uh, she said that he 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 raped her and uh, and beat her up in their divorce paper. So uh, I'm not making it up. I'm making it up at all. That's what's really going on. Please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Sylvia M. B. in Washington State. Baron Trump's Marvelous Underground Journey by Ingersoll Lockwood, Washington. Chapter 4. My She's wound from heals. Virginia. Juliana talks about the giant's well. I resolve to visit it. Preparations to ascend the mountains. What happened to Juliana and to me. Reflection and then action. How I contrive to continue the ascent without Juliana for a guide. It was a day or so before I could walk steadily. In the meantime, I made unusual efforts to keep my brain quiet. But in spite of all I could do, every mention of the giant's well by one of the peasants sent a strange thrill through me. I would find myself suddenly pacing up and down the floor and repeating over and over again the words, Giant's well, giant's well. Bulger was greatly troubled in his mind and sat watching me with a most bewildered look in his loving eyes. 
He had half a suspicion, I think, that the cruel blow from Ivan's whip-handle had injured my reasoning powers, for at times he uttered a low, plaintive whine. The moment I took notice of him, however, and acted more like myself, he gambled about me in the wildest delight, as I had directed the peasants to drive Ivan's horses back towards Illich on the Illich, until they should meet the miscreant and deliver them to him, I was now without any means of continuing my journey northward, unless I set out, like many of my famous predecessors, on foot. They had longer legs than I, however, and were not loaded with so heavy a brain in proportion to their size, and a brain, too, that scarcely ever slept, least not soundly. I was too impatient to reach the portals to the world within a world to go trudging along a dusty highway. I must have horses. 